Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In this podcast series, I've tried to unpack the story in Matthew as a story about a Jewish Messiah written by a Jewish scribe, a scribe who, I think, was very likely a Pharisee. Now, I've not found any scholars who say this, that the author of Matthew was a Pharisee. But interestingly, I have come across scholars who think that Jesus was a Pharisee, or is portrayed as one in the Gospels. Yes, Jesus. One simple line of argument that I've come across is that Jesus is portrayed as a rabbi, and all rabbis were Pharisees since the rabbinical movement arose out of Pharisaism. That last part, that all rabbis were Pharisees because the rabbinical movement arose out of Pharisaism, may seem like a leap, and perhaps it is, but to be fair to those who make that argument, All rabbis that we know of, even before the destruction of the temple, other than Jesus, were Pharisees. Both the schools of Hillel and Shammai were Pharisaic schools. Some scholars think that Jesus was of the school of Hillel, and his arguments, the ones portrayed in the Gospels as being against the Pharisees, are actually all against the school of Shammai. But I've also heard it argued that Jesus was sometimes in line with the school of Shammai, such as in regard to marriage and divorce, over against Hillel. So that line of argument runs into some problems. In regard to the general premise that Jesus was a Pharisee or is portrayed as one in Matthew, I just think it's far more likely that the author of Matthew is a Pharisee or a former Pharisee who is portraying Jesus as a peasant rabbi who resembles Pharisaic rabbis in many ways, but is in conflict with the party of the Pharisees who are of a higher socioeconomic class. But if you think of all rabbis as Pharisees, then perhaps Jesus is a peasant Pharisee arguing with upper or retainer class Pharisees. But at that point, we're just getting into semantics and arguing about what a rabbi or a Pharisee is. I tend to go with the gospel text and reserve the term Pharisee for a member of a ruling class party in Jerusalem, which is portrayed in Matthew as opposing Jesus, and rabbi as the general name for a Jewish teacher of wisdom. So that brings us back to the common understanding of Jesus and Pharisees. So why did I even get into that? Why is that important? This is why. Pharisees are widely understood as the forerunners of rabbinic Judaism, and most religious Jews today fall under the broad umbrella of rabbinic Judaism, from Reform to Orthodox. Since Pharisees are widely understood as the forerunners of modern Judaism, then you can see the problem in the story found in the four Gospels of the Newer Testament, in which the main enemy of the hero of the story is the Pharisees. 
especially if one does not think of the author as a Pharisee or perhaps of Jesus as one. Many modern Jewish readers of the gospel who know their history can easily understand from the story that they and their people are the enemy of Jesus. Jesus in these gospels criticizes the Pharisees harshly. He is in constant conflict with them, and they are part of the coalition that plots to execute him. The Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew are villains. Matthew vilifies the Pharisees more than any of the other four canonical Gospels, except maybe John. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' opponents, the villains, are not just the Pharisees, but people referred to as the Jews. Now, some scholars will say that we should translate that word as Judeans, meaning people with allegiance to the particular government in Jerusalem at that time, so not all Jews as we understand that word today. And any fair study of that gospel should, I think, make clear that the author is referring to the political leaders of that society. But the word is almost always translated as the Jews, which leads the average reader to understand the Jews as the bad guys, the villains of the story. And there are scholars who think that too. They think that the Gospels are anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. They either don't think any of them were written, or some of them weren't written, or their final versions were not edited by a Jew, or they don't think that it matters because the final product that we have vilifies Jews, or in the case of Matthew, Pharisees, who are the forerunners of almost all modern Jews. And it's not hard to see where they are coming from. The gospel story has been used as a pretext for the horrid persecution of Jews for centuries, the worst of which has been the pogroms of Europe, and the Holocaust perpetrated by the Nazis. And that should give any of us pause. And yet, pretext is not cause. The gospel story has been a pretext for this horrible persecution. A pretext is a stated false justification for an action that is going to be taken regardless of the pretext. The perpetrators are merely looking for a justification that they can assert to validate their crimes. If they can't use one thing, they'll use another. And there have been many other weird justifications for persecuting Jewish people. The gospel story, the way it has been written and translated, does provide an opening for it to be used as a justification to persecute Jews. But it also could just as easily go the other way, and often does. Anyone who reads the story and is even half paying attention should realize that Jesus himself is a Jew. The text is very clear that whatever critique that Jesus has against his opponents in ancient Israel is an argument between Jewish people, between people of the same society and ethnic group, and that the lessons learned that we should draw from it are lessons that should be applied to our situation, and often as critiques of our own behavior. 
And that's not to mention the actual teaching of Jesus, which completely forbids any violence whatsoever, especially against a vulnerable group of people. To use the gospel as a pretext to attack someone requires the perpetrator to ignore most of what the gospel teaches. The lessons about loving your neighbor and even your enemy, the clear refusal by Jesus to use violence, and his teaching that his followers should do likewise. Only a highly opportunistic person or group would use the gospel as a pretext to attack other people violently or to scapegoat other people. And of course, many have done so. The story of Jesus is constantly invoked as the stated motivation or part of the motivation behind scapegoating fear, hatred, and war. But it is very clear to me that those who use the gospel this way clearly have not spent much time reading it or are influenced by other factors and motivations beyond the gospel itself and have merely impressed the story into their hateful program, contorting and twisting it until it is no longer recognizable to anyone familiar with the actual texts of the Gospels that we have, even in the worst English translations. The fact that this happens frequently does not, I think, diminish my argument because, unlike any other story, this one just so happens to be the central story of the dominant religion in our society. So it is the one that people often feel they need to commandeer for their cause, whatever it is. So if they want to scapegoat an ethnic or religious group or start a war, they have to recruit Jesus for their cause. So then, Jesus, who teaches love of neighbor and enemy, who calls for a society of mercy, who befriends the poor and creates a community of solidarity among the peasantry and the outcasts of society, a community that practices nonviolent prophetic witness against forces of oppression, that Jesus gets conscripted for campaigns to do the exact opposite of all of that. And so we have inherited this brutal, diabolical irony. Jesus as the champion of racist hatred, oppression, and war, even against his own people. And that makes the next brutal irony that I want to talk about even harder to discuss. The current occupation and oppression of the Palestinian people by modern Israel. In this podcast series, I often refer to the ancient Roman occupation of Israel during the time of Jesus. The brutal occupation of Israel by the Roman Empire constitutes the setting of the gospel in Matthew. And virtually all of Jesus' work and teaching is shaped by a reaction to that occupation. And even though the gospels never use the term Palestine to refer to the land of ancient Israel, it is a term that was used in the Greek-speaking world for that region as far back as the 5th century BCE. Today, ironically, there is a modern state called Israel which now occupies the same land. And the occupation is brutal for the Palestinian people. To make a brutal irony even more brutal, the creation of Israel in the land of Palestine and its subsequent occupation of the rest of the land of Palestine is a fairly direct result 
of the severe persecution of Jews in Europe by people whose religion centers on a Jewish Messiah that taught love of neighbor and enemy. And so we come full circle. Christians distorted the message of the Gospels to persecute Jews in Europe, some of whom fled to Palestine and set up the modern state of Israel, which now persecutes Palestinians, even Christian Palestinians. It's been almost 20 years since I visited Palestine. I went there on a 10-day delegation with Christian peacemaker teams in July and August of 2001. Our delegation was there in the early phase of what was called the Second Intifada, or the Second Uprising Against the Occupation. While our main guides were full-time Christian peacemaker team staff who rotated in and out of Palestine, we also at times were guided by both Palestinian and Jewish-Israeli partners. What I witnessed in those ten days was so intense that I came as close to a nervous breakdown as I ever have in my life. After a couple of days in East Jerusalem, our delegation went to the majority Christian Palestinian town of Beit Jala. Some of the farmland belonging to the people of Beit Jala was confiscated by Israel in 1970 for a settlement called Gilo, which is easily visible from Beit Jala. During the Second Intifada, there was a small group of young men in that town that were known as the Tonzim. They were armed and loosely affiliated with the PLO, and they could not be reined in by the rest of the town. Often after sunset, they would fire off bursts of automatic fire at Gilo. In response, two Israeli military positions on the edge of Gilo would counterattack with a barrage of heavier artillery on the town of Beit Shala for hours, and Israeli helicopters with snipers would fly over the town trying to pick off suspected Tonzin members. The first night that we were there, what I just described is exactly what happened. When it began, we were gathered at a church in the middle of town. When the barrage of Israeli artillery started, we crouched down below the windows to avoid any bullets that might come that way. We then made our way to the door that led to the parking lot. We could see bullets flying into the parking lot. We waited for lulls in the shooting, and when there was one, we would run out in groups to cars that were waiting for us to take us to where we would be staying for the night. The cars drove with their lights off so they would not be detected by the Israelis. The cars drove around rubble that had just fallen in the streets. We were taken to homes on the edge of town closest to Gilo. The whole reason we were there was to be human shields. Since we were North Americans, it was hoped that the Israelis would be more restrained lest they kill or injure one of us. To be clear, we were not shielding any weapons or fighters. We were shielding civilians. From the homes we were taken to, we called the U.S. consulate to let them know of our presence. But it didn't seem to make a difference because the shelling continued for six hours. I and one other delegation member went to a home where two of the young adult children spoke fluent English, but the rest of the family spoke none, 
and our Arabic was virtually non-existent. For part of the night, we huddled with some of the family members in a part of the house that they considered safer than the rest. It was sort of their bomb shelter, only it wasn't underground. It was just an extension of the house furthest away from Gilo. Not much of a bomb shelter. During a lull in the shelling, one of the daughters, a little girl, sang us a song in Arabic. We were told that it was a song of pride for Beit Jala. Amazingly, from what we were told, no one was killed that night, and only one person was injured, shot in the leg. That still amazes me to this day, but we were told that that was normal, although people did get killed on some nights. Most nights, everyone survived. I just recently listened to Malcolm Gladwell's audiobook, The Bomber Mafia, and in it he describes how during World War II, the residents of London quickly became inured to the German bombing of their city, often going about their normal activity, including going to the theater or to a dance, while the bombing was happening, because most people on most nights were not harmed. So I guess it's normal in some wars at some times that hours of shelling or bombing don't kill many people, or in the case of Beit Jala that night, none at all. But other nights... When we were not there, people were killed. The next day, we went out with another family to their farmland to harvest some produce. The family was not able to go out on their own. They always went with international groups so that the settlers in a nearby settlement wouldn't attack them. The settlement was trying to annex the land and would attack the family if they were alone. We helped them harvest produce and then worshipped with them on the land. When we got back to town, we had a media conference to get word out that North Americans were in Beit Jala. CNN and other media outlets were there. That evening, we went back to the same homes. Early in that second evening, the Tanzim fired off a couple of bursts of automatic rounds at Gilo. This time... There was no response from the Israeli military. The rest of the night was quiet. A small victory. From there we went to Hebron, known as Al-Khalil in Arabic. The apartment that we stayed in was in the old city and had thick stone walls. So even though there was fighting in that city as well, we felt safe in the apartment. I still have this vivid memory of worshipping together in that apartment during the fighting. As the artillery fire and bombs got louder, our singing got louder. Worship never made more intuitive sense to me than it did that night. While we were in that area, a few of us hiked out to the Baca Valley and stayed with a family there for one night. At that point in time, this subsistence farming family had suffered the destruction of their house three times, twice by settlers and once by the Israeli military. Each time it was rebuilt with aid from the Israeli peace movement. The settlers who destroyed their house twice were from a settlement down the hill and across the road. The settlement had already confiscated some of the family's land and made it part of their settlement. The family told us that the settlers had come up the hill after dark 
and attacked them and destroyed their house. So they were always afraid at night. The father, whose name is Atta, would keep watch every night until 2 a.m. That night, I kept watch with him. While we were keeping watch, two Palestinian taxis came driving down the dirt road at the bottom of the hill. There were two parallel roads there, a nice paved one that only Israelis could drive on, and a dirt one for Palestinians. The taxis, on their way home for the night, could not drive very fast due to the dirt road conditions. As they were passing between the hill and the settlement, a settlement security vehicle suddenly shot out from the settlement over the road and blocked the taxis from proceeding. A settler security officer, armed with an automatic rifle, got out of the car and demanded that the taxi drivers get out of their vehicles. The taxi drivers complied. The security officer proceeded to shoot out the tires and smash all the windows of the taxis. I went down the hill with Atta, who got some of his brothers who lived in another house halfway down the hill, and we got the men from the taxis and brought them back to the brother's house for the night. At some point during our visit, I can't remember whether it was the next day or earlier in the first day before all that stuff happened with the taxi drivers, but at some point, I was sitting with Atta in front of his house, overlooking the valley, overlooking his brother's house, overlooking his father's house, and just a bit further, the Israeli settlement. And Atta said, We can have peace. There's enough land for everyone. I should also add that during our trip, we visited two different Palestinian organizations working on nonviolent resistance to the occupation, one in Beit Sahur and one in Hebron. That was all 20 years ago. Things have only gotten worse since, especially in Gaza, but in the West Bank too, including East Jerusalem, where we have recently seen in our own news media the violence against the Palestinian families there as settlers attempt to push them out and take their homes. This is the reality for many Palestinians living in East Jerusalem and the rest of the occupied territories. Their land and homes are constantly under threat. It is a slow ethnic cleansing by settlers, backed up by a national military, very much like what happened in North America. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to look up Beit Selim, spelled B-apostrophe-T-S-E-L-E-M, Beit Selim, www.baitselim.org, or you can just do an internet search for Beit Selim. They are an Israeli human rights group that painstakingly documents all the home demolitions and fatalities in Palestine, as well as provides other analysis and news that you won't get anywhere else. I also recommend Jewish Voice for Peace, which organizes in North America, as well as Christian Peacemaker Teams, which sends teams around the world to wage peace. If you have been listening to this podcast on Matthew, you will know that one of my major observations about the story told in Matthew is that Jesus wages a nonviolent campaign of healing and casting out demons, rather than a military campaign as Joshua, David, and the Maccabees did. 
The story is a bit of a parody of military campaigns, or at least portrays a nonviolent alternative. That is what Christian Peacemaker Teams does, although it doesn't do it through medical and feeding programs, but through providing eyewitness accounts and standing in the way of violence. Christian Peacemaker Teams follows in the way of the Palestinian Jewish rabbi, Yeshua, who lived under a brutal occupation and drew his inspiration from Torah and the prophets and started a movement for a new, radically egalitarian society that he called the Kingdom of Heaven. Wherever you are in the world and wherever you are in your journey of life, I hope that you are taking some inspiration and strength from this study in Matthew and that the little detour that I've added in this special episode has helped. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been a special episode of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Mm -hmm.